Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, October 5th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news, and then I'm going to be presenting an interview with the directors of a new movie called The Rescue. My name is Ben Pearson. I am a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film's senior news editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. All right, Jacob, welcome back to the show. You and I are here, and that must mean one thing. There is a new Game of Thrones-related teaser trailer out. So, uh, is that HBO... all we have in common, Ben? Is that all <laughs> we ever get together to talk about? We have no other interests that align? <laughs> no, we have plenty, but I was just referring to the fact that you and I jointly reviewed the last <laughs> season of Game of Thrones. So uh, for maybe people out there, old, uh, old Thrones heads who remember reading Slash Films coverage way back in the heady days of 2018 when that show was coming to a close. Uh, But yeah, HBO has released the first teaser trailer for House of the Dragon, which is the first of what appear to be several Game of Thrones prequel, sequel, spinoff, all sorts of different types of shows that they're developing. So Jacob, I wanted to have you on and and talk to you about this. What did you make of this first uh, pretty vague teaser trailer? I... I was wondering if I would be excited about Westeros again. I mean, I'm actually a defender of the final season of Game of Thrones. I don't hate it, which puts me in the minority, apparently. Uh, but I, I kept on wondering, has enough time passed for me to like be excited to go back to this world? And this trailer kind of proved, yeah, I, I am all for it. I'm ready to learn all the new names, learn all the new houses, reorganize the fictional history in my head. <laughs> uh, and it's a teaser trailer, as you said, just not a ton here. Uh, but it reminded me that, oh man, uh, for up and down, for good and bad, I love the living in Westeros for eight seasons. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, yeah, I'm right there with you. I think you and I probably wrote some of the kinder <laughs> reviews of, of the final season. Um, I, I think, you know, a lot of people had their claws out for what was happening there in the end. And I think both of us sort of like, you know, I think we came to grips maybe more than most with the realities of what was happening there with the decisions that the showrunner the showrunners made to end the show at the point that they did. And you and I, I feel like took the, uh, the viewpoint of like, okay, with that big decision out of the way and, and all of the cascading effects that came after it, how did this thing shake out? And, and I think both you and I came down, you know, fairly, um, 
uh, positive on on that experience. I, in terms of House of the, the Dragon, there's so little like actual real meat on this bone in terms of this teaser that um, I don't know really anything about the story, uh, but the imagery, like you were saying, it does make me, it doesn't want to, to sort of pull me back into that world. And I was especially uh, intrigued by the, one of the final shots in the trailer, which is um, somebody walking into a throne room and the uh, the Iron Throne, the throne that that is made of these melted down swords, um, which in the in George R. R. Martin's novels it's supposed to be uh, maybe thousands of swords, like a ton, a ton. Uh, and the HBO uh, verse, I guess, it's had to uh, to drop that down significantly just for practical reasons. But I liked the um, the approach of like this character walking into this throne room, and there are melted swords, uh, sort of standing. Um, almost like a like a uh, a pit of spikes or something leading up to the throne room and then melted down on the stairways sort of like uh like like the grinch slinking down you know, <laughs> you know what i mean like slinking down a, a a stairwell so um were there any particular bits of imagery in this um in this teaser that stood out to you jacob that's the one that really stood out to me because that's very much more in line with the Iron Throne as described in the books and as depicted in art that George R. R. Martin has shared online. If you look at the art he shared online, it's, it's literally a towering, towering throne with steps leading up to it made out of swords. So this appears to be you know, an earlier version of it. At some point between the Targaryens ruling and the Baratheons taking over in rebellion, uh, the Iron Throne gets damaged or changed or made less ostentatious. I, mm-hmm. I love that the sense of history there. I, it's a, one of the recurring themes of Game of Thrones is how I, is how history gets lost or changed, and the idea that that something that was so so iconic, like the iconic image from the original show, didn't look like that. It, it changed over the years, and nobody acknowledged it in the new show. Uh, it's already you know has my brain you know turning on how this show could reinvent and rewrite what we know about the history of this world and history of this, you know, fictional continent, which we already know uh, so well, at least I think we do. I mean, I'll use a, a, a recent example, uh, The Many Saints of Newark. Have you watched it, Ben? Uh, I have not. I'm I'm still, um, I'm in season two of my first watch through of The Sopranos. So I'm going to wait until right. after I finish that show and then I'll watch that movie. I won't spoil it, but I will say that there are certain events that occur in that movie the Sopranos prequel movie, that are described vividly in the original Sopranos show. But when they happen in the uh, in the prequel movie, different characters are involved, or the dialogue has changed, mm. or the circumstances have changed. And David Chase, the right, co-writer of that movie and the creator of Sopranos, said that's intentional. It's meant to depict that the idea that, you know, memory is fallible. You know, decades pass, and, things, and the thing you, you're sure you know has completely changed. And I'm really hoping this is something that uh, House of Dragon will lean on uh, in terms of what we already know about the future of these characters and this world. Yeah, and like the idea of uh, of like um, stories becoming so sort of um, cemented in the firmament that they become legends, and then the, those stories just continually are told and retold, and then uh, the legend just builds and builds and becomes more and more difficult to sort out the truth from the fiction. I love that idea, and I think there's a ton of room in a show like House of the Dragon to, um, to yeah, go back and sort of upend uh, what we think we know about that. I think that's one of the things. I've not read um, Fire and Blood, which is the uh, the Targaryen history that George R. R. Martin It's so wrote. long. I own it, Ben. But the fact that it's <laughs> not a novel, the fact that it's a history, it's like yeah. a thousand pages long. I, I can't bring myself to crack it open. 
<laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you had you if you had taken the dive into that because um, I think that's one of the things that I've seen him. You know, on his he's, he's still rocking the uh, what is the website that he uses? It's not Tumblr. It's like um, oh no, it's um, it's a, it's a one of those one of those old school blogs. Oh, Live Journal. That's Live Journal. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> he's still riding hard for Live Journal. But yeah, I think I've seen some of his uh, blog posts on there talk about how. Um, like essentially engage with that exact idea that we're talking about and that house of the dragon um or i'm sorry that fire and blood the the book that house of the dragon is based on uh kind of um yeah like like hints that some things that you think you know from the game of thrones and, and song of ice and fire uh novels and and show may not have happened exactly in that same way so yeah i'm, I'm very very curious about that idea um I just I really want to see more from the show. And I, I you know, uh, I feel greedy because I hadn't seen anything really up until today. But I'm like, ah, this tease is so tantalizing. I, I want more. So how um, do you feel about uh, Matt Smith, Rock and Targaryen look? Um, I don't really have much of a relationship with Matt Smith as an actor. I think, uh, you know, I've never seen Doctor Who. I know, I know that you and HT are, are very much on board uh, that whole train. And so I have no real um, associations with him as, aside from like, you know, Terminator Genesis, which was sort of laughable. Um, I'm trying to think if I've, if I've seen, oh, I haven't seen The Crown either. And I know that he was supposed to be good in that. Uh, or at least a major presence in, in the, those early seasons. So yeah, I, I guess I'm okay with with him. I it's really just like one one or two shots or something in this teaser of him rocking the the he's big narrating hair. It too, though. So, oh, he is okay. Yeah. yeah so I guess what I like about Matt Smith, and this is going to sound like a low blow, and it's I apologize in advance, which is that he's handsome enough to play like the would be ruler of a fans kingdom. But just odd enough looking that you believe he's a Targaryen who's had sex with family members for generations. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. The Targaryens have a, uh, a messy bloodline, that is for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like the cast here. It's like, I think Matt Smith is probably the biggest name in the whole uh, in the whole collection of, of actors that they've yeah, gathered. Him and, him and Patty Constantine probably is the uh, actual king. Uh, yeah. Um, I like Olivia Cook quite a bit, uh, even though, you know, she wasn't really, really great in Ready Player One. That's probably the thing that most people have seen her from, but um, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, I thought she was really great in that. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of hers, and hopefully, uh, I know she plays a, a very significant character in uh, in this show, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what she does. And um, I'm looking forward to having uh, Miguel Sapochnik back behind the camera. He, he directed several of our favorite episodes of Game of Thrones. So um, at least the look should be somewhat consistent. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I any... nobody off in Weiss. Like, they're not involved at all. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really interesting. And I think that alone is probably going to be a draw for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I find myself just sort of intrigued by that idea. Like, what can Westeros be? without, um, you know, the, these people who sort of uh, breathed um, visual life into it. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of like what a what a comparative situation might be in another franchise. And I'm kind of drawing a blank. I'm sure there's something. Maybe if you uh, listeners out there can think of one off the top of your head, shoot us an email and let me know if, if there's been a situation like this where the original um, showrunners who sort of introduced a thing in the visual world have, have stepped away and there's been um follow-ups in that sort of try to keep the the same uh look and everything and the the original people did not retain like an executive producer credit or, or stick around in any capacity whatsoever so um i think the first thing you see immediately that uh signifies that this is not a benioff weiss production 
is that they were very, very strict. They're very, very strict about keeping a medieval Europe feel uh, for uh, Westeros down to the races of the people who live in the Westeros versus mm-hmm. overseas. And yet in the trailer, we get first glimpses of um, of Corliss Valerian, played by Steve Toussaint, who is a black actor. And the idea that the show is just like having a major house in Westeros uh, with a major name like Valerian, uh, be played by black actors is something that that Benioff and Weiss never would have done previously. Mm-hmm. It's a fancy world, and you're allowed to break those rules. So that's actually, I think, the first major like signifier of oh, new people are in charge here. Yeah, the the last line in the trailer, Jacob, says something like, um, "Dreams didn't make us kings; dragons did." And we don't see any dragons in this teaser. But I'm wondering what you think about the idea of uh, of dragons potentially being a major um, component of this show right off the bat because that was one of the things i think that made game of thrones such an interesting watch was that dragons only appeared in the season one finale and they were babies and they were pretty small throughout the first two seasons but uh by the end they became these these massive things and the the show sort of of, um i mean i I think a, a case could be made that the show lost its way a little bit as the dragons and the visual effects became more important uh as the show went on so what do you think about the idea of dragon involvement in the house of the dragon well since this is a season one they clearly need to have these giant baskets the dragons live in to save me um but <laughs> <laughs> uh, all seriousness i'm very curious because clearly they're going to be kicking this thing off with you know a budget that's comparable to the final seasons of game of thrones mm-hmm. uh so it means like does it stay consistent does it get bigger somehow uh, I mean, how do you build up that scope, you know, when you start off with, you know, full access to $100 million seasons and, you know, massive dragons? Uh, I'm really curious to see if they choose to start small and grow steadily, you know, toward larger things or if they're going to go all in with the giant battles and special effects up, up first. Because I think that's why Game of Thrones was so powerful is that because they had such limitations early on, mm-hmm. they leaned so hard on letting us get to know those characters and, and their dynamics. They couldn't lean on Hard Home or you know the Battle of the Wall or the giant epic dragon fights. They they couldn't. They they had to hook us with great character writing. I'm really really hoping that it doesn't become a lazy crutch. Them going dragons to start and forgetting about why we fell in love in the first place. Yeah, a hundred percent. So, any other uh, closing thoughts on this this first teaser, Jacob? Uh, the internet is going to be unbearable with this show, no matter what, <laughs> good or bad. It'll, it's going to be unbearable, and I I wish I wasn't online for, for that future time. Well, I think uh, at Slash Film we will do our part to um, to try to make it a little bit more bearable, <laughs> even if we end up hating the show. Hopefully, we won't. We won't. Uh, well, hopefully, we won't end up hating the show. But uh, if we do, then at least hopefully we won't be as obnoxious about it as I'm sure a lot of folks will be. So. Uh, Jacob, thank you for joining me for this discussion. And uh, I'll, I'll be back next time. There's House of the Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I look forward to it. Okay, so some of you may remember this, but there was a global news story back in 2018 when a Thai soccer team and one of their assistant coaches were trapped inside a system of caves in northern Thailand. And water essentially uh, hemmed them in on both sides. They were just stranded on this tiny little patch of dirt and uh, the Thai Navy SEALs got involved. There was a massive, massive rescue attempt that was put underway to try to rescue this soccer team. Um, Eventually British divers who are the best in the world at what they do, even though they're recreationally diving, they they basically just like spend their weekends doing this for fun, but ended up becoming the the best in the world at this, were called in and they used their very specific set of skills 
to try to rescue this team. And uh, Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin, who are the filmmakers behind a movie called Free Solo, a documentary that came out a couple years ago that is very, very good, they made a new documentary called The Rescue that breaks down everything that happened during this rescue attempt. And it is fascinating and compelling and uh, really sort of edge of your seat stuff because I knew the broad strokes of this story. I kind of, I knew how it ended. I knew how it began, but everything in the middle in terms of the actual specifics of what went into getting these kids out or trying to, uh, I had no idea about. And the uh, the level of ingenuity and creativity that went into that is, um, is pretty stunning. So yeah, The Rescue. I've talked about my thoughts about this uh, movie on a previous mini water cooler episode with Chris not too long ago, so you may remember that. But um, I would definitely recommend checking this film out. Uh, National Geographic made this, so my guess is that it will ultimately end up on Disney Plus at some point in the future um, because they have a, a Nat Geo section on that streaming service. But the movie is actually coming out in theaters this Friday, so October 8th, I believe the, the date is. So if you want to check it out uh, as soon as possible, that is the way to do it. So um, yeah, if you can safely see this movie in theaters, I would, I would recommend doing that because it's a, like I said, a really, really fascinating watch. So I had a chance to speak with Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chen about making this movie. And uh, we don't really get into too many quote unquote spoilers for this real life event. Most of the conversation I think is about the challenges that they had and, and faced in making a movie like this uh, under the confines of the pandemic and what kind of um, creative workarounds and solutions they had to uh, employ to to be able to pull this thing off. Um, as Jimmy says at one point in this interview, documentary films are really hard to make, just sort of as is. So adding this whole extra layer of complications on top of things uh, kind of sounds like a nightmare scenario for these guys. So um, the fact that they were able to, to uh, make something that is um, as gripping as it is, I think uh, speaks very, very highly of their abilities as filmmakers. So I thought it was a good conversation and I wanted you guys to be able to hear it. So here is my conversation with Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin about their new movie, The Rescue. All right. Well, uh, congratulations on this movie, guys. I want to start by going back to when Free Solo debuted. And I was wondering if you were fielding offers for new projects while you were doing the press rounds for that movie. What was the timing like there? Um, well, this wasn't about offers. This film was something that we tracked and really wanted to make. And I think like many people, like some in 2018, like we were fascinated with the events as they were trans, you know, unfolding. Um, so this is something we chase as opposed to being offered. Okay. Yeah. I was curious about that. If, if like National Geographic came to you and said, Hey, do we have this as an, as an option? Or if you guys sort of sought it out and it sounds like you, you were doing the work to, to really track it down. So what did that work look like for you in those early days in terms of like getting the rights or, or however it came to be? The right. There was like a whole right situation around the story. Um, and the um, National Geographic had the rights, the, di the nonfiction rights, the diverse stories, and another filmmaker had started the film and the, it just, it didn't work out, right? And so once we were aware of that, we pursued National Geographic and asked for it. Yeah, and it helped that we, you know, made it work with National Geographic on free solo, so. Yeah, I'm curious about the rescue. Like, what was it about this this story at this moment in your careers that felt like now is the right time to make this movie? Because I imagine you guys could have made, you know, any number of projects in the wake of how successful Free Solo was. I don't, we don't really think that way. It was just more that this was a story that was incredibly compelling to us personally. 
and looked at questions that we were interested in. And also we felt that we're pointing into the moment, like this idea of, you know, how people from everywhere came together to achieve like the impossible. And, you know, it's some, it was a story that and questions we were willing to live with for a while. Cause that's the whole thing with nonfiction. It's like, like you start and you're in for quite some time. And this was, it just, this one felt right. So I, I oh, go ahead, Jim. Oh, well, I also think actually Chai says this, um, and we discussed this too, but it's a, you only have so many films in your future. So it, it has to matter. Um, and, and it has to, you know, in a perfect world for us, it will transcend, you know, the, 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 the universal themes and the ideas behind it will hopefully transcend even the story. And that's, that's what we try to work towards. Yeah, yeah, we thought we 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 saw this film and the story as a as a story that that could transcend. I went back and checked the date for when it was announced that you two were going to be making this movie, and it looks to me like it was March second, twenty twenty, which is just I mean, a, yeah. a few days yeah. before. <laughs> Good timing. So, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm curious how far into development you were at that point, and obviously like how the pandemic affected the plans that you might have had in place. Um, we started on the film about six months earlier, and our first trip to Thailand was planned for February. Twenty. Um, and we had three cinematographers drop out, you know, and so it became like the writing was on the wall, like no one knew what was going to happen. So, um, so we postponed that shoot. It seemed like prudent, given that our children would be in the states, would be over. Like it just the whole thing seemed like the right thing to do, um, and you know, it went on from there. I mean, it sounds like kind of a nightmare scenario. So like, yeah. just tell me about some of the challenges that, that you guys had to overcome during that period. I mean, but the, the point about this film is like, it's like this great like working example of like why people make documentaries, right? So in documentaries, like the, like the constraints, the challenges define like the innovation or define the creativity. And like this film was a great story, but there was absolutely no footage from inside the cave. You know, only, very little. I mean, very, very little, but not certainly not enough. And, you know, so starting there, like the constraints were pretty significant, but it was like kind of a good fight always because you knew you had the story and the story was probably important and it was something we were willing to be emotionally invested in. Mm -hmm. I, I'm really fascinated by the balance of footage that you guys were able to capture, sort of the, ca the footage that was in the moment that did exist, you know, as the story was taking place in real time, and then the reenactments that you guys orchestrated, some of which included the same people who participated in these events the first time around, which is pretty incredible. Um, can you tell me about how you arrived at the decision to approach the construction of the film using those methods? I mean, it was no choice. It was either going to be like animation. And like, I mean, it just, there was no, like, it was. And so, what we did know was that we had a few amazing things, like when they find the kids and that moment um, when Harry's anesthetizing um, the first child. And then also, like, the oxygen meter. Like, this was all stuff we understood they had. Um, and there were also rumors of other footage. But you know anything underwater, like there really was, like, there was nothing. So, um, so the reenactments became a like a necessity, and you know it's less a reenactment than a demonstration because it was like the real guys and the real stuff showing us what they really did. Um, and for people who weren't present at the actual rescue, this is our first. 
film like this that we weren't present for the you know main action like it was a we learned something it was like a teaching opportunity where we could actually understand the gravity of tying a child's hands behind their back pushing their head under like that whole it was stuff like you can't really fully understand until you see it and our objective is like to try to convey that for an audience but you know we only learn that through the reenactments and then i think authenticity is is really important to us um and i think you know having the divers actually show us how they did it and and say oh no you know we did it this way because you can only carry you know so many tanks and shove them through or you know, oh jason carried five tanks and you know when you see a person hauling five tanks through like a submerged cave I, there's just so many aspects of it that were very eye-opening um and you know to do to a degree we get that world in the sense of like people you know having a life pursuit of doing something that has very high stakes very high risks um there's a cer certain mentality behind it there's a certain <coughs> passion and commitment they bring to their craft that we we understand and relate to um and so the reenactments for us and, and that experience of, of working with them was, you know, really important to us. And, and it informed a lot of, you know, how we thought about the film. Were those demonstrations all filmed in the same cave system in Thailand? Or were you guys able to, to sort of cheat that a little bit because it was more practical in certain other areas? I mean, it, it was in the middle of the pandemic, so it just it wasn't feasible to go to Thailand, even though ideally it would have been that. Um, so it was done in a tank. In the wow, UK. that looks incredible for being done in a tank. That's amazing. It's so dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm glad that you even asked the question because I was like, wow, he really thinks it was in the game. <laughs> I mean, it looked great. It looked great. I was just, yeah. I mean, so were there any sort of... Um, I guess like uh, pandemic related testing procedures and stuff that you guys had to do when you were shooting in a tank, because I imagine a tank is sort of um, more of an open space, but maybe it, the, the confines were a little bit tighter. Yes. I mean, you know, I think we did it in October of last year. So at least by that point, there was some protocol established. A lot of, you know, films were being made um, and, you know, I think we we're productions were kind of finding their way through how to do this safely. So yes, there was a lot of testing protocol. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud and happy to say that we, you know, we, we did not have any COVID incidences on our production. I mean, also to the diver's point, it's like the tank is highly chlorinated. It's like a pretty <laughs> cool Yeah, highly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was nerve wracking. Like the divers aren't young. And, yeah, Rick is um, in his is he 60? Yeah. Um, you know, so we just, not on our watch was kind of the thing. So like, yeah. And you mentioned the the three cinematographers dropping out. Did you, were you able to sort of make that ground up elsewhere? Were you able to hire other people or were you guys able to just sort of do more with less by the time, you know, it came down to actually shooting stuff? We filmed with remote crews. I mean, because of the pandemic, you couldn't like, I've never, we've never met Dr. Harris because he lives in Australia. Um, and he's got super stringent COVID, you know, rules. So we filmed with remote crews everywhere. So we would be asking the questions over Zoom and there would be a, a crew there in person that's been tested, you know, like the whole protocol has been followed. But um, 
Yeah. And so I don't, I mean, I think what we lost then was time. Um, cause we did, I did eventually end up going to Thailand. I don't, I think we just lost time because if had, we had certain meetings two years earlier, we would have had more material earlier. Like instead of like, it came in as drips and drabs and it was very frustrating. So yeah, it was hard to anticipate, you know, it's like normally, you know, we, we would hope we were like, we know it exists or we know it's out there. We don't know what it is. Like, are we going to be able to find it? Um, you know, I, I think just making, I guess it goes without saying documentary films are hard to make to begin with. <laughs> you add an entire layer of, of a global pandemic, um, much like everything else in the world. Um, it just, it, it added a lot of complexity. So tell me about the way that you guys use CG to clarify the geography of the cave, because obviously that's a vital piece of context for the audience to have. Well, we're really lucky that National Geographic actually had this TV show where they did a 3D scan of the cave. And we were able to acquire that from, you know, it's within the company. And oh, cool. So you could just like use those assets? We could use those assets and those assets are like prohibitively expensive. And so- And then build from it. Build from yeah. it. So like the CG is all based on actual scans of the cave. Yeah, so it's accurate. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. Um, so it, it wasn't long after this rescue took place until a bunch of Hollywood projects were announced adapting it for film and TV. And I'm curious if you were in any way wary about taking on this story because it was in theory going to be so well covered by all of these, you know, this flurry of announcements around that time. Yes, we were incredibly wary. Um, we were actually tapped to direct one of those feature projects. And it was always like, oh, the nonfiction would be great and not fiction. Um, we were very wary and also, you know, but I, it's just, I don't know, this story is so rich, there's room for a lot of different versions and um, the rights were so segmented. And, you know, honestly for us, like the nonfiction is, you know, kind of the, it, like that's where we get our, like it was all about the problems. That was exciting. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I think- Especially when you're stuck in COVID and you're like pacing around a room over and over again, being like, how can I fix this? Or I can never fix that. Like it just, yeah. you know, it's about problem solving and ambition. And I think we were, you know, we were hoping to be the truth setters, you know, like kind of like really diving in like investigative journalists, like really getting the story right and accurate. Um, and that was really important to us. And, you know, we felt like that was um, important for us to, to get, get in front of it. Yeah. I'm curious about the soccer team's coach who was trapped in the cave with them. And I'm, I'm wondering if the extraction process was any different for him since he was older and presumably like physically larger than the boys on the team. Do you guys know anything about that? Yes, um, it was actually unfortunately one of the parts that's not in the film um, because it's too complicated. Um, the, it wasn't different. He just, um, it was Jim Warney, who's like the fifth diver added in the last day, who brought out the coach. And he actually had an incident where he like kind of came out of his anesthetization and like grabbed the breathing pipes. But I've met him, you know, I met him with, um, with several of the kids in Thailand. And it's, he, it's like less than he's the coach, he's the assistant coach. The, the main coach was not there that day. And he's kind of like a big brother to those kids. So he's like very much like the big brother. Like, you know, I, I saw when How we- How many years older? I mean, he's 25 two, right? now, right? He was, he was 22 so, yeah. at the time. And yeah. um, 
like they sit on his lap. Like it, it's like he is, and also he's from, he's like an undocumented um, person from Northern Thailand. So he also doesn't speak fluent Thai. So there's like an interesting dynamic in it, but he's a very gentle soul. And these children really look up to him. He was previously a monk. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. So I probably have time for one last question for you guys. And I'm just curious about the status on Nyad at, at this time. And I'm, I'm wondering how you guys are feeling about making the jump from documentary to narrative. We're terrified. I mean, isn't that the point? <laughs> like, I think, but I think every film we make, like we're terrified and don't want to do it. And then we're suddenly there. We're very excited and feel, you know, we're excited. Yeah. Last I heard production was supposed to start this past summer. Or are you guys like able to, were you able to start at that point? Or are you guys still, what, what's the deal? Pre-pro starts in November. Oh, great. Okay, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to it very much. And I'm, I'm really happy to be able to talk to you guys about this movie. And I hope a lot of people get a chance to see it soon because it's, it's really great. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Cheers. Bye. All right. So, yes, The Rescue hits theaters on October 8th, 2021. And hopefully you guys get a chance to see it. If not in theaters, then uh, sometime sometime soon because it's, it's definitely worth your time. So that is going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailback topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Please make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.